Amen. As you travel through the book of Acts, when you get to chapter 18, verse 18, that would begin what uh, we know as Paul's third missionary journey. And it would be a journey that would last about four years, from 53 to 57 A.D. And as you recall, when you move into chapter 19 of Acts, we know that Paul would spend much of his time on that third missionary journey in the city of Ephesus. Matter of fact, we know from Acts chapter 20, verse 31, that the apostle tells us that he was in that city ministering for three years. He spent more time in the city of Ephesus than any other city on his missionary journeys. He spent three years there. The, the next you know, uh, closest that any city that he spent any time with uh, near that amount was Corinth. He spent a year and a half. So Paul would travel through these cities fairly quickly, but he stayed for three years here in the city of Ephesus. It was a major seaport city in proconsular Asia or Asia Minor. Today um, it is called Turkey. And as I mentioned, it's a harbor, that city. It had an important harbor, and it was a city that was fairly large for ancient times, a city of about 300,000 people. And in the city of Ephesus was the ancient, one of the ancient wonders of the world as far as buildings. It had a temple that was the Temple Artemis. It was dedicated to the goddess Diana. And it was the first Greek temple that was built of marble. And the temple was magnificent. It had 36 columns all the way around it that were 40 feet high. And it was an important attraction to many of the Roman Empire that would come to the city to worship the goddess Diana. Kings and leaders and people from all over the Roman Empire came to Ephesus, to that port. They would come and they would worship there. And so a lot of people coming in and out of the city. When Paul was there in the city of Ephesus for those three years, there was much fruit that came from his ministry, as you know, as you read the New Testament. We know that Paul the Apostle, that for two of those years, that he had a discipleship school. It was called the school of Tyrannus. And there, as people were getting saved, young men were getting saved, he was discipling them. And then they would be sent out and they would establish churches. And it's very evident that that took place because many of those churches of proconsular Asia that you read about here in the New Testament, for example, in Acts, or the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches. We know that there's a church of Thyatira and Smyrna and Pergama and Laodicea and some other Sardis and other churches such as Colossae and, um, you know, Areopagus. There's no evidence that Paul was in those cities. So it's believed by scholars that those disciples from that school would go out and plant those churches. So much fruit would come from that, the school of discipleship, as Paul would teach them the word of God. And then also we know that Paul, while he was there in the city of Ephesus, many were giving their lives over to Jesus, so much so that they were coming and they were bringing their, their books of sorcery and magic, as you read in Acts chapter 19, and they were burning them. And great revival took place in the city of Ephesus, so much so that the silversmiths who were making these little idols of Diana, uh, their business dried up. They were going out of business. No one was buying their idols anymore. So they began to come against Paul. They, the whole city ended up in a riot, in this huge riot, and Paul ended up being driven out of the city of Ephesus. Well, he would continue his third missionary journey, and what he would do at that point is he would go over to Greece. He would go to the provinces of Macedonia and Achaia, 
he's taken a collection from the saints there to take to Jerusalem, which you read about in Acts chapter 21. That would end his third missionary journey. But while he's there in the city of Philippi in Macedonia, he writes the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He talks about this collection that he's going to, to come to Corinth and, and, and bring, and you need to follow the example of the churches up here in Philippi and then Macedonia. He would backtrack, and on his way backtracking to go to Jerusalem, he would stop there at Miletus, and he called for the elders at Ephesus, and he would address them. It's a powerful address there in Acts chapter 20. And he says, you know what manner of man I was in all seasons, that I held nothing back from you. I gave you the gospel. I went from house to house preaching and teaching the word of God. And I know that tribulations and chains await me, for the Holy Spirit has testified of that to me. But I don't count my life dear to myself, but I'm determined to finish my race with joy uh, for the ministry of giving the gospel that the Lord has given to me. And I did not shun to give you the whole counsel of God's word. And so you make sure that you take heed to yourself and, and take care of the church which God purchased with his own blood. And he goes on in that powerful address, you're not going to see me anymore. This is the last time you guys are going to see me. And then he would say to them that I warned you day and night for three years with many tears that there are going to be those who are going to rise up among you speaking perverse things, savage wolves that will draw disciples after themselves. And then Paul would say farewell to them. He would head to Jerusalem. And as you know, in Acts chapters 21 through 28, it tells of the story how Paul would be arrested there in Jerusalem as he was wrongly accused of taking Gentiles there to the temple and, and the city rioted. It seemed like where Paul went, uh, there always was a riot or a revival or sometimes both would happen. And so they would take Paul, the Romans, into protective custody. And what that did was it set off a series of trials, as you know, that lasted for about three years that he was, you know, uh, taken and um, he was in jail there in Caesarea. He would eventually uh, appeal to Caesar because he was a Roman citizen. They said to Caesar, you shall go. And the book of Acts ends with Paul coming into the city of Rome where he's under house arrest. He's going to be chained to a Roman guard. And while he's there for two years waiting to go on trial before Caesar Nero, it's about the year 60, 61 AD, he's there and he takes pen in hand and he writes what is known as the prison epistles. There are four of them, not only the book of Ephesians, but also Colossians and Philippians and the book of Philemon. So with that background, here Paul identifies himself in the opening of this letter. As I read to you, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. He knew that his calling was from the Lord. I am called by the will of God to be an apostle, uh, one who is sent out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And know this, that God has a calling and a will for you. And you can put your name there, that is, that you can say that Dustin, a, a worship leader, called, you know, by God, by the will of God. Or, you know, Bill, who is an usher, you know, at church, by the will of God. Whatever ministry God has for you, God wants to place us where we can be used of him and for him. It's ministry that you have at the workplace, perhaps out in the community. It's here at Calvary Chapel. God has a place for you, and wherever you find yourself at, that you are a salt and light to others, that is the will of God and the calling of God in your life. 
And you see, what can happen is sometimes we can think, oh, the early apostles and, you know, all throughout church history, the evangelists, the missionaries, the pastors, and, and even today you, Pastor Jeff, you, you must be fulfilling the highest calling of God. People can think in that way. But the reality is this, that truly the highest calling of God is wherever God has called you to be, whatever God has called you to do and equipped you to do. That is God's highest calling for you. And we need to never feel like our ministry, whatever it might be, is not important to God. It is very important to God. But know that God places his people. He sends us out in all different places, whether it's out in the field, guys, in oil fields or at the construction site. Maybe you own a business. Maybe you're a nurse or a teacher. Maybe you're at home with the little ones. It's all ministry. And your calling and your ministry is by the will of God. And every one of us has a place to be and a role to play in God's highest calling for you. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Now, many people have the view and the mindset that a saint, as we know, is one who has been canonized by the church, of course, the Catholic Church. I grew up in a Catholic Church. That's what we were told and that's what we were taught. And one, you know, who was really holy and did miracles and lived a life of awesome ministry and sacrificed their lives completely to that. And after their death, after so many years, they are officially canonized by the church as a saint by the cardinals. Now that may be Roman Catholicism's definition of a saint, but it's not God's. It's not the biblical definition of a saint. The Bible declares very clearly that every single one of us who are Christians, who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is by the biblical definition a saint. And it comes from the word, uh, as uh, same word as holy. Holy has the idea of being set aside for God's use. As we give our lives to the Lord, as we surrender our hearts to Him, our lives are now set aside for His will and for His purposes, we are to be different than those of the world. We are an instrument to be used of the Lord. So if you're a believer, then you're considered by God a saint. So Paul, writing to the believers, to the saints that are in Ephesus, he gives his greeting in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that this is a, a very common greeting of Paul in his epistles to the Christians. He writes grace to you and peace. It's always in that order. And so as we've discussed so oftentimes before, it is always grace before peace because you will never really have peace until you know and have received God's grace. When it finally sinks into our hearts and we call it our own, that we are blessed, that we experience God's riches at Christ's expense, grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It is not God's riches because of me. It is not God's riches because of my piety. But I experience the blessings and riches and benefits of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And when I live in His grace, then you're going to experience His peace. You will have His peace in your heart. And so the grace and peace available to us comes only from true grace and peace, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, people sometimes will ask me, the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, uh, what is 
you know, all that put together. Well, we know his name is Jesus. It's the Greek for the Hebrew name Yahshua. But Christ is not his last name. Uh, we know that the word Christ is the Hebrew word that means Messiah or literally anointed one. It tells of his mission. He is God's promised savior. And of course, Lord is a title. He is Lord. And it's important to establish a relationship with him, not only as savior, but Lord, the Lord of your life, as we are committed to him and, and completely surrendered in our hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. So a couple things here as we're in verse 3. As we read this, um, Paul just breaks out in blessing God. Notice that he writes that who has blessed us. And I find it interesting that Paul would write this as he sits in a Roman jail chained to a Roman guard. And it is Paul that as he's praising God, he's just going to talk about the spiritual blessings that we have in the Lord. Now, when I think about this, as Paul is writing this, uh, as he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. Of course, Paul was one that went through tremendous difficulties, didn't he? I mean, when he wrote 2 Corinthians, as I mentioned to you, after he left the city of Ephesus, he went to Philippi, and he's writing that second letter of, of uh, you know, to the Corinthian believers because there were those who came in, these guys that were really elevating themselves and, and calling themselves super apostles, most eminent apostles. And they were putting Paul down and putting his ministry down. So Paul begins to share with them in that letter very personally about his ministry, how he came to them and how he humbled himself and didn't ask anything for them. He freely gave them the gospel and, and he talks about his ministry. He shares his heart in that letter more than and more personally than I think any other epistle that he wrote that we have in the New Testament. And in chapter 11, he begins to write about my ministry. I've already been shipwrecked and floating in the Mediterranean Sea three times. We know that would happen again after that he wrote that letter. I've been beaten by rods. I've been flogged. I, I, I've experienced much persecution. The, the, the perils of persecution. I've experienced the, the perils of weariness and toil and hunger and thirst and cold and loneliness. He went through so much and he will continue to go through much persecution and difficulties after he writes this letter. But Paul knew that's what it was. His ministry was that he was going to suffer many things as he was told after his conversion for the sake of Jesus Christ. Yet he breaks out and prays to God. And I think if I was in Paul's situation, if I was in his place, I would probably be writing, yeah, grace and peace to you, but woe is me. For I'm forsaken and I'm forgotten and, and, and broken and by the Lord. And I would begin to perhaps murmur and complain. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? There are times in our lives when we feel imprisoned by difficult circumstances and we think I'm not blessed. But what we see and what we can learn from the Apostle Paul is that consistently and constantly that he continued to rejoice in the Lord no matter what situation that he was in. He remains committed and excited about the Lord and the reason that he did is because he realized that as a believer in Christ, 
that there's tremendous blessings that are found in Christ. And he's not just talking about the material, physical blessings, but the blessings that cause him to break out in praise here in the opening of this letter is the spiritual blessings that he's going to talk about. And how we need to especially, in a society in which we live and in the messages that are being given in the church today, we need to understand that because there are many meetings that are going on this morning, church meetings and services, that are going to emphasize the material blessings, the physical blessings that we can have in the Lord. And yes, he does bless us materially and physically. Yes, because every gift, gift comes from above. But what we see in the scriptures is very clearly that the primary focus for us as believers is the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. They keep our eyes on eternity and to prioritize heaven and to store up our treasures in heaven. Here we see that Paul is writing as though He's the most blessed and wealthy man in the world. Because what we're going to see here, that in verses 3 through 14, it is one sentence. An English teacher would say it's a run-on sentence. As Paul would just keep going and keep going and keep going and keep going, telling us of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the spiritual blessings in Christ. Have you ever noticed when you go through the gospel narratives, that Jesus never focused on the material, physical, political realm. Yes, he did many healings. Yes, he did many miracles. Yes, he fed the 5,000. But his emphasis was the kingdom of God. And he would preach the kingdom of God. And he would say to the people, you're only coming to me because you're hungry again, physically. They wanted to crown him as king up in the Galilee region, and he dismissed the crowd because they were only looking for a political, material king. Hey, we'll never be hungry again. We'll never be sick again. And again, as I mentioned, there are blessings that come from the Lord in that realm. But Jesus was saying to them, you need to believe in the bread of life. You need to believe in me. Come to me. And eat and drink of me, and you'll never hunger or thirst again. So the writings of the apostles, when we read not just Paul, but the others, always focus on spiritual blessings and priorities. How we have the riches of God because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So Paul is thanking God for the spiritual blessings and when you hear a person that is given thanks, we need to know what he or she is emphasizing in their thanks. And of course we're going to give thanks for the physical and material provisions of God. We are to do that. But Lord, I also understand this that it does not compare to the riches of Christ that are ours, the blessings in Christ. And that's why Paul was able to just praise God in the difficult times and, and losses and, and circumstances that he would face. Secondly, as I read this, Paul is going to tell us why, when we begin in verse 4, why we have the spiritual blessings that come from God. He's just going to go on, and it's going to be wonderful when we go through this section of Ephesians. One of the things that I have noticed going through the Pauline epistles of the New Testament is that there's a pattern that is there. In other words, there's an order to his writings that I think is important to note. Paul, of course, is inspired by the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is moving and speaking through the apostle and the letters that we have in the canon of Scripture, and we see this pattern that begins to develop. 
we see that Paul, he makes sure that, first of all, we understand very clearly who we are in Christ, our position in Christ, what he has done for us, the blessings that we have in Christ as a Christian. We have a clear understanding of the grace and the goodness and the love of Jesus Christ towards us, and then we are told how to walk with Christ and live for Christ. You see that in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians was the very first book that we have in the New Testament written by Paul. And in the first four chapters of Galatians, Paul has an understanding very clearly that we are justified by our faith in Christ. He is our hope. He's the one that proved his love for us by dying on Calvary's cross and redeeming us by his blood. So we look to him alone for salvation and forgiveness of sin. The law cannot do that. The law cannot justify anyone. So once we understand what Jesus has done for us in redeeming us, his grace given to us, then this is how I get to walk in that grace. This is what I get to do for him. As you begin in chapters 4 and 5 of Galatians, walk in the spirit. Don't walk in the flesh. Fulfill the love of Christ, which is love. Carry one another's burdens. All those things that you read in those last two chapters of Galatians. He uses the same pattern when you go through the book of Romans, doesn't he? In the first 11 chapters, the apostle spends time telling us that there's a sin problem. Chapter 1, the heathen has sinned. Chapter 2, the Hebrew has sinned. And in chapter 3, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. But then he begins to introduce the doctrine of justification, that we're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. And he talks about salvation. It comes by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And then he talks about sanctification, that we're set apart for him, and that we walk in grace. And what it means that, is that we live for him. We don't live after sin. Should we continue in sin that grace abounds? Certainly not, he writes in chapter 6. And so not only writing about we're free from the penalty of sin because of what Jesus Christ has done in going to the cross, but also the power of sin in our lives sanctification, being set apart for him. So Paul, he's just writing all these wonderful, life-changing, powerful, wonderful truths. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and who can separate us from the love of God and just blessing after blessing after blessing of, of our position in Christ, what he has done for us. And then in chapter 12, to the end of the book, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies? The mercies that I've just talked about in the first 11 chapters, that you now present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And the reason that I'm mentioning this and, and pointing this out is because it's a pattern that we're going to see as we study the book of Ephesians. This book has been called the Queen of the Epistles. It has also been called appropriately the Alps of the New Testament. And the reason is, is because as we go through this book, it's going to take us into the heavenlies. It's going to tell us that we are seated with Christ. And once we understand who we are in Christ, the blessings that come from Christ, that is chapters 1, 2, and 3, then chapters 4, 5, and 6, this is how we live for Christ. This is how we walk in Christ. Chapter 4 begins, I therefore beseech you to walk, you know, worthy of the calling which you are called. And then he talks about, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the new man, and walking in love, and walking in light, and husbands love your wives, and children obey your parents, and, and all of this 
the instructions that are given to us. Put on the whole armor of God. And the point is this. We need to understand. And we need to know and see clearly what Christ has done for us. His love towards us. And if we are grounded in that and rejoice in those things, chapters 1, 2, and 3 of this book, then we're going to be told this is what I get to do for Christ. And it will be a joy for us to do it. It won't be just this heavy obligation. The reason that I'm mentioning this, because in the years that I've been ministering, I have observed as being a common problem with Christians is that people in churches will emphasize the duty before they clearly understand the devotion. And what happens is our Christianity becomes kind of a works-oriented kind of thing, and it gets hard rather than marveling, just marveling over the love of Christ, which will motivate you and I to walk with Christ. Does that make sense? You see, oftentimes pastors will go right to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and emphasize, we're going to do a study on family, on marriage, and walking in the light, and, and that's good. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that at all. But I think that we need to be taken into the heavenlies first in the first part of the book. When I was in college, my buddies and I, we would be known to skip class, head up to the hills. And it was when school semester first started in the fall, and we skipped the Friday afternoon classes. We headed up um, to the hills. We were going to go to a lake that was on the base of one of the peaks at Rocky Mountain National Park, and we headed out. And we're walking, you know, down this trail, and we thought we were on the right trail, but then, you know, that day, that afternoon, the clouds came in, the fog came in, it was cloudy, we couldn't see anything. We're walking down the trail, and we're thinking, well, are we in the right place? Are we on the right trail? And, and you could see, you could know if you could, you know, clearly see where you're at, the mountain before you, but we couldn't see anything. So we pitched our tents and and thought we'll try again in the morning and, and we got up and the fog burned off and pretty soon we could see that mountain there and we could see that we were where we were supposed to be and we had security we had you know comfort in knowing that yeah we're on the right road and it was a, a blessing I remember just thinking are we lost all night long and maybe we're you know went the wrong way but then as we saw that mountain we knew we were in the right place there are many Christians that will set off on a journey spiritually having good intentions. Hey, I'm going to get my family in order. I'm going to love my wife. I'm going to be a good employee. I'm going to be a good boss, whatever it might mean for them. And that's all great and, and wonderful. I'm going to nail chapters 4, 5, and 6, all the practical stuff. But what happens, it ends up being kind of hard. And it becomes a struggle. And in some cases, it seems like I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm confused. But here's the key that I'm trying to explain this morning. Make sure that you see and understand the mountain that's before you. The mountain that Jesus died on, Mount Calvary. As he hung on a cross for you. And Lord, make it more real to me than ever before. Your love for me and my position in Christ and how blessed I am because I am forgiven. This letter wasn't written just to give us theology. These truths are given to us to elevate us up into the heavenlies. And as we do that, then the tasks that are before us that we are to do won't be so burdensome and hard and confusing. 
And there may be some that are going to be here this morning hearing this message that you're thinking, I'm going to get things right at home, in my marriage, at the job. And that's great. But the reality is you need to first sit. You need to be seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And as you do that and grow in that, then, chapter 4, you're going to walk worthy of the calling in which you were called. And what my prayer is that as we go through this epistle, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, is going to do just that. The wonderful epistle of the letter written to the Ephesians, climbing up into the heavenlies together as we go through this book. So let's look at those spiritual blessings that Paul begins to write about as he's just rejoicing in the Lord, verse 4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So Paul declaring the wonderful works of, of God on our behalf. First of all, we read that God has chosen us in him. God chose me. Now, that thrills me when I read that right off the bat. It's a glorious blessing, isn't it? I can see why Paul puts this at the top of the list, that God chose me in you before the foundation of the world to spend eternity with him. And that means that God didn't choose me after I decided to clean up my act and live for him. He didn't choose me because he looked down and thought, oh boy, Jeff, you're going to really amount to something. There's some real potential in you. Seems like you have it together. Wow, I think I'll choose you to spend eternity with me. God chose me before the foundations of the world. Now that does, you know, give me a key into God's choices. He chose me according to his foreknowledge. God knows all things, doesn't he? There's nothing new that God will learn. He's all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning, as Isaiah says. And sometimes Christians have a problem. They're bothered with this whole area of, of being chosen and predestination and election. And I think that we have a problem with it because we can't fully understand it. And through the centuries, theologians have debated and discussed, and it goes on today, this whole area of election and predestination. And the one thing that we need to remember is that we do not have foreknowledge, and God does. We need to remember that God is sovereign, and I'm not. God is God, and I am not. And I've learned to rest in the wonderful truth of God's word. Yes, he chose me before the foundation of the world. I don't know why he chose me. I don't know why he chose you. I don't worry about the why. I just enjoy it and rejoice in it. Jesus said, you have not chosen me. I've chosen you and ordained you that you shall bring forth much fruit. And I think, Lord, why did you choose me to be a pastor, the pastor of this church? I don't know why he did. It's because of his wonderful grace. He didn't choose me because I deserve it. I think part of the reason that God chose me is given to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. God has chosen the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So God chose us before the foundation of the world. What a blessing. Now, as I mentioned to you, this whole subject of being chosen and predestination will bring up all kinds of endless debate and groups dividing over it and arguing to make their point. There are those that will conclude that if God chose some to be his, that he chose some for hell. It's called double election. And it doesn't say that, does it? It really is adding to the scripture. And, and the argument is, well, pastor, that's a natural assumption, not necessarily. The fact that God for knows those who are saved and he's chosen them does not exclude anyone from coming to him. 
because the scripture says, whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. And I do not see in God's word one example of one person who has humbled themselves in repentance and come to God in faith through Jesus Christ and then be turned away. God's saying to that person, well, wait a minute, I need to check the list to see if you're on it. We made this list before the foundation of the world. Oh, so, sorry, you seem like you wanted to come to me. That's too bad. I didn't choose you, you know. We can't treat this like choosing teams for soccer. I chose you and you I didn't choose. There are some that say, the Lord, that he will choose you even if you don't want to be chosen. And I don't see that in scripture either. He's not going to force his love on you. He's not going to force you to come to him. And you see, the point is the sovereignty of God, we just can't stuff in a box and have it all figured out with our little finite minds trying to figure out an infinite God, all-knowing God, who knows everything, who sees everything. He knows who we're going to be saved. So people ask me, Pastor Jeff, do you believe God chooses? Yes, I do. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Well, do you believe that we have a choice? Yes, that is taught as well in the scripture. Joshua cries out, choose you this day who you will serve. Peter writes, as we saw last week, that it's not God's will that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. The ball's in your court. The choice is yours. I don't believe, as some do, that Jesus only died for the elect, for those who are saved. He died for everyone. The Bible's very clear about that. 1 John chapter 2, 2, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be saved, but it is for those who come to Jesus Christ and make that choice to believe in him. So you say yes to Jesus. I'm coming to you in faith. I believe, as you declared in John's gospel, I am the door. I'm going through the door. I'm entering in. And as you go through the door in heaven, remember John in the book of Revelation chapter 4, it starts out, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And as you enter into that door of heaven, it's kind of like written above the door is whosoever will come. And you go through the door and you look behind you. And on the inside of the door, it's written, you have not chosen me, but I've chosen you. So God chose us before the foundation of the world. Now, there may be a few that think, well, that's not fair that perhaps God didn't choose me. I'm not saved. But every time that I've asked, and I'm sure you've have experienced the same thing. Why aren't you a Christian? Why don't you give your heart to Jesus Christ and let him be the Lord of your life? Never, never have I had a person say, because I wasn't chosen. God didn't pick me. It's because they didn't want to come to Jesus. And maybe here at this service or sometime this morning, there's going to be somebody that's going to say, well, I don't know if I'm chosen. I would encourage you to give your heart to Jesus. Humble yourself. Repent and turn to him for salvation and forgiveness of sin. Choose to be chosen. And if I don't try to figure out why God chose me, rejoice in it and how it works. The fact that Jesus died for you and he knew you before the world ever began and he knew that you would be here on this morning to tell you that he loves you and forgiveness and salvation is found in him. So he begins to write about these spiritual blessings. And as he says that we are chosen before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We are chosen not only for salvation, but also for holiness. 
So the time that God chose us, elected us, in eternity is in eternity past, and the purpose for election is that we would stand holy and blameless in His sight for eternity. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is in that little epistle of Jude, right before the book of Revelation. And it states that Jesus will present us faultless before the Father, before His presence of His glory with exceeding joy. He's going to present us faultless. And as I think, Lord, me faultless, I'm so far from being faultless. But that's the position that we have in Christ. In 1 John chapter 3, that when we see Him, we will be like Him. So wonder that Paul is praising and thanking God. And we're going to see more blessings next week as we go through this, as he just this run-on sentence, he's just getting started, that we'll travel through verse 14 of the chapter of all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, the spiritual blessings adopted and inheritance and forgiven and, and redeemed and all these promises that will cause us to be taken into the heavenlies. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you so much as we begin this epistle, this study in the book of Ephesians. And I pray that, Lord, that as we, in the weeks ahead this summer, that as we study this book, that truly that we would be taken into the heavenlies. And my prayer is this, is that, Lord, we would learn to sit, and then as we just marvel at your incredible grace and love for us, that it would help us and encourage us to just walk with you, to be the, the man or woman of God that you've called us to be. As we understand that we're a new creation in Christ, we're a new man and a new woman in Christ, to be the, the husband, the wife that you called us to be, to be the employer or employee that you called us to be, to live that life of, of holiness. Because one day we're going to be presented before the Father faultless because of what you have done, your incredible grace. And the Father and the Son are going to rejoice over us. That's our future. Lord, we may not fully understand. We embrace the truth that you chose us before the foundation of the world. And you give us that truth, not so that we can have endless debates, but that we can rejoice in it. And Lord, marvel at it. That your sovereignty, your all-knowing power, and, and, and Lord, foreknowledge. So Father, I do pray that if there's anyone here this morning, at this service, that you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, that the invitation is given to you to come to respond to the gospel and to say that I want to be forgiven of sin. And Jesus, I know that you're the only one that can forgive me because you're made provision. You're the one that made the sacrifice on the cross and shedding your blood. And you proved who you are by rising from the grave as you conquered sin and death. As you rose three days after your death and you're alive today you understand that you need to be forgiven because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. And by chance, if that means anything to anyone here this morning, my prayer is that you give your heart to Jesus Christ right now, right where you're sitting, because the day is the day of salvation. And you would pray right where you're sitting that Jesus, I believe in you, and I come to you right now. I confess that I am a sinner and needed the Savior of the world, that's you, Jesus. 
who died for me. I believe that you died for all of my sins on that cross and that you were put into a grave and you rose again from the grave and you're alive. Be my personal Lord and Savior and help me to live for you. Help me to grow in the blessings and the grace of what you've given to me, what you've poured out in my life to then, Lord, give me the power to live for you. I thank you for hearing my prayer, and I thank you for salvation that has come to my life in Jesus' name. Father, for all of us, that you would just, Lord, bless us this week. Guide us in everything. And Lord, that we would be a light and salt to others that we run across this week or talk to. And Lord, may we just marvel at your incredible spiritual blessings that you've given to us. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said, amen, amen. Would you please stand?